Grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. I have to confess that these words from our collect this morning filled me with dread this week. On Thursday, I sat in that front pew there for over an hour, praying over that sentence, wrestling with the thoughts banging around in my head. Because when I think how well I show forth in my life what I profess by my faith, I find myself wondering whether I really do believe what I say I believe. If I really believe what I say I believe about the powerful, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, about the transformative love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And why do I have to keep confessing the same things to my spiritual director month after month? Why has my wife had to sit me down multiple times over this past month to talk about what it's like to be stuck in a house with somebody who's as cranky as I am as often as I am? Why could I not wrestle this sermon down until well past midnight last night? One of my colleagues on Twitter this week asked, what's something that you think everybody in your position does that you don't, that makes you feel like an imposter? And my thought was, what isn't? Maybe I've just had a really rough week. Or maybe I was missing the whole point of the collect. See, at first blush, this collect feels like religion. It feels like the sort of thing that most people think we come here for. Maybe some of you still do. A family member told me a few years back that she doesn't like going to church because the preacher just makes her feel guilty. The funny thing is this is not the sort of Bible-thumping fire and brimstone church that you might have imagined when I told you that. Well, it's closed now, but when it was open, it was a church that didn't say much about what you ought to believe, certainly not based on Scripture. But it did have a lot to say about how you ought to behave. And yes, there's plenty of that in fundamentalist churches as well, but whether the preacher is yelling at you about not protesting enough or about drinking too much, you get the same message from religion on both the left and the right. You don't measure up. God loves you, sure, but because of your behavior, he really doesn't like you very much. So if somebody cares at all about God or about not wanting God to be mad or at least about not wanting to feel guilty, well, they find themselves trying harder and harder to behave themselves. And if they're part of a culture where certain behaviors are especially honored and others especially condemned, they may figure out a way to look spiffy to their co-religionists. This is easier, of course, when you like doing the things that are honored and don't particularly care for the ones that are condemned. I'm a terrible dancer. If I were Baptist, I could make that a virtue. The late pastor and philosopher Dallas Willard, a Baptist, said that too many churches preach what he called a gospel of sin management. Namely, that if you can figure out how to tamp down the worst sins and just throw the blood of Jesus at the rest, then you ought to be able to quiet the nagging voice of your conscience just enough to muddle through. Well, the problem 
with the gospel of sin management, of course, is twofold. First, it doesn't work. Just this week, we were clearing out some old files from our basement. I ran across the program schedule from a conference that Mary and I attended about 20 years ago. The keynote speaker was a very highly regarded pastor with a national profile, someone who in fact had a leadership role in a prominent national Christian organization. He was known for challenging the men of his congregation to practice chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within it. And he had a lot to say about the sexual license encouraged by our culture. He also, it came out about five years later, had a habit of having sex with escorts while high on crystal meth when he took writing retreats at downtown hotels. I have never seen anything as cringe-inducing as him answering a reporter's questions about one of those encounters from the driver's seat of his car while that reporter was reaching her microphone through the window across his wife in the passenger seat. Maybe your sins aren't as embarrassing. Maybe they aren't as public. Maybe they haven't hurt people you love that much. But we all know that just trying harder to behave doesn't get us where we need to go. Religion never does. The reason why is that it doesn't get at the other element of the problem, the fact that we are looking for help in all the wrong places. Let me explain what I mean. You see, the words from this morning's collect show forth in their lives, echo those of the general thanksgiving at the end of morning and evening prayer in our daily office, which reads, that we show forth thy praise not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to thy service and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. These words are stirring. They're inspiring. They send you off of your knees with a sense of purpose. And then as often as not, I find myself failing miserably less than an hour later. So this word of hopefulness and empowerment gets turned into a word of condemnation. The despairing accuser of the brethren taunts us with the reminder that we are powerless to improve ourselves and As that feeling of impotence gets realized, we experience it more and more deeply. But the fact that we are powerless is actually the good news embedded in this whole mess. If we want to show forth in our lives what we profess by our faith, we need what comes before those lines in that prayer of general thanksgiving. What comes before is this, And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we show forth thy praise. So the logic of the prayer is this. We ask God to make us so deeply aware of his mercies that we can't help but thank him, truly, from the heart, and that this thankfulness will dispose us to live in a way that honors him. So you can see this is a very different thing from living well because we feel guilty or because we want to stay out of trouble or because we want to look good to others. What the prayer is talking about here is exactly what Peter is talking about at the beginning of his first letter. 
Because of what God has done for us, we believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The mercies that the prayer refers to are the ones mentioned a few lines before. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for thine inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And you'll note that exactly none of the things that this prayer refers to are things that we do. They're all things that God has done. He has created us. He has preserved us. He has blessed us so that we can say with the psalmist, my boundaries enclose a pleasant land. Indeed, I have a goodly heritage. And above all, he has redeemed the whole world, including us, through the atoning death of his son, leaving us means of accessing his grace and giving us the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that Peter talks about. So according to the prayer and according to Peter, and I think the psalmist would agree, the deeper our gratitude, the fuller our obedience. If we do want to show forth in our lives what we profess with our faith, or if we want to want to, or if we at least want to want to want to, then the answer is not to gather up our energies and try harder. The answer is to be thankful. And one of those means of grace mentioned in the prayer is the Eucharist. That word Eucharist comes from a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. Indeed, in the Eucharistic prayer we are using during Eastertide, the very first thing we say after the Sanctus is, we give thanks to you, O God, for the goodness and love which you've made known to us, above all in the Word made flesh, Jesus, your Son. The theologian Robert Weber taught at Wheaton College and wrote the book Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail about those like himself who moved from Baptistic expressions of church to Anglicanism. Weber used to say to anyone who was facing just about any difficulty, flee to the Eucharist. I think one of the reasons this is such good counsel is that firmly embedded in our practice of the Eucharist is a deep expression of thanksgiving to our God and a robust reminder of all that we have to be thankful for. We are experiencing the Eucharist very differently right now, but it may be that the strangeness of our present practice can deepen our sense of gratitude and will make us all the more thankful when we are able physically to receive together what we now may only participate in spiritually. This is the third Sunday of the month, and ordinarily on the third Sunday we have a healing service. March's healing service was five weeks ago, but it seems like five years. That was the last time I shared the bread physically with anyone to whom I wasn't giving last rites. Today, though, we will orient our hopes for healing to our participation together in the Eucharist. And my prayer for myself and for all of you is that the deepening of our gratitude 
will indeed show forth in growing obedience and showing forth in our lives what we profess by our faith, all to the glory of Almighty God. Amen.